Welcome to the Organizing Ideas Podcast. I'm Allison. And I'm Karen, and we are two new librarians and archivists and your hosts for this podcast. Together, we're taking a closer look at the relationships between organizing information and community organizing, how libraries and archives are never neutral, and what we mean when we say that knowledge is power. We are recording on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Today, our guest is Symphony Bruce. Symphony is the resident librarian at the American University Library in Washington, D.C., and is part of the 2019 cohort of the Library Freedom Institute Privacy Advocates. As an academic librarian, she works to empower students to locate, question, and integrate information, not only for their own coursework, but for the way they navigate their lives. Symphony's librarianship is highly informed by her years as a high school English teacher, where she learned the significance of student-centered learning and how relationships are crucial to the educational experience. January 28th, 2020 is Data Privacy Day, and we are very excited to talk with Symphony about her work around privacy, information literacy, and digital safety. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into this field and like this, you know, particular area of interest? Yeah, um, I'll start with why I got into the field. Like you mentioned before, I used to be a high school English teacher and I made the career change due to a number of factors like work-life balance, But one of the more pronounced reasons is that I realized in doing my job that the communication arts classroom revolves around the teaching of research skills, which was something that I was not prepared for in my undergraduate coursework. In a lot of the methods courses for English programs for teaching um, high school English, they revolve around reading and comprehension and writing, but somehow research and the skills necessary were left like totally out. And so like all English teachers, I taught myself how to teach research and I ended up like loving it. And then I realized that there was like a whole profession for that. (laughs) So, and so I switched gears and, and now I'm teaching in an environment that has proved at least for me to be really healthy and, and to allow me to teach what I want to teach. So it's been pretty cool. Privacy is an area of interest, though I think developed mostly out of incongruencies that I saw at the high school with regards to how ed tech was chosen and adopted. To make a long story short, I worked in a Google district, meaning that we used Google for our entire productivity suite from email to Google Drive, Google Classroom, and my students were provided with district-issued Chromebooks. So uh, when the district began moving to being a one-on-one district, meaning every student had their own Chromebooks, I didn't feel like admin did a very good job of explaining to students or their parents how much information that admin or Google were collecting on their internet behaviors. Mostly they would tell students, don't do bad things on the internet. Because <laughs> right. you know, like, don't they look up porn, we'll see <laughs> And like, that's not very helpful. That doesn't explain like how they'll know. That doesn't explain um, any of sort of the trackers behind that. It didn't explain how content blocking works. And so I would have to tell students that if they were going to do research for any reason, for me, for themselves, on something that they didn't want the district to know about, that they were gonna have to use a personal device. 
But that's a problem that's exacerbated when your most needy students don't have personal devices, right? Like these one-to-one programs are designed to create a more equitable academic environment, right? So my most needy students finally had a computer at home, but then anything that they were doing on the internet was then completely available to the district and the different trackers that were being used. More so, a lot of those students often had the only device in their homes. So not only were their own behaviors then available to be tracked by the district, but if their parents were using that Chromebook to pay bills, if their siblings were using that Chromebook to apply for jobs, you know, like all of these things then become trackable, essentially. And and that's not cool because you have some students who can get out of that tracking and you have some students who cannot. Anyhow, the year that that program sort of began to roll out was my last year in the classroom. So I have sort of taken this interest with me into privacy, into library spaces where ed tech, third party vendors, all that kind of stuff is just as pervasive. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so interesting and grim. (laughs) So right now you're the resident librarian at the American University Library in Washington, D.C. Can you tell us about your role and and what you do there? Yeah. So my position as resident librarian is a position created for early career librarians in support of the ACRL Diversity Alliance, which works to respond to the recruitment angle of diversity issues in LIS. And that's a whole other topic. Right, but anyhow, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've touched on it a little bit before, but yeah, <laughs> that, that's the whole other thing. But anyhow, that's how my job was created. I am an instruction and research librarian. I teach information literacy skills and concepts in an embedded instruction style, mostly with first year writing students. Although I have recently become our interim business librarian, which is my first sort of step into subject librarianship. So I'm pretty excited about that. Cool, thank you. So maybe like we can cover some terminology, like what is information literacy? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to give you the ACRL framework definition because I don't think it sucks. Information literacy, according to them, is the set of integrated abilities encompassing the reflective discovery of information, the understanding of how information is produced and valued, and the use of information in creating new knowledge and participating ethically in communities of learning. I think that when I'm teaching and I'm thinking about information literacy, I'm thinking about who is allowed in the information creation process, who is left out of the information creation process, who has access and who doesn't, privilege of having, the privilege of not having, and trying to get students to think about their information seeking through those lenses. And on your website, you're very explicit, and we love it, (laughs) that information is empowerment. Um, And, you know, we use the phrase, and it's a common phrase, I think, within, like, librarianship and also teaching, that knowledge is power. Uh, Can you talk about, like, what you mean when you say information is empowerment or or how that comes up in your work, like, some of those political angles on on information literacy? Yeah, absolutely. I I think I want to first say that I think we all innately have power. We are powerful people. Whether we are disenfranchised in that power, um, we all have that alone within us. Um, And knowledge alone isn't a source of power. But when coupled with our own innate power, our 
autonomy. Information provides us with a channel to use that power. And I think we can agree that one really easy way to disenfranchise powerful people is to keep them out of the know or out of the loop or clueless. So instead, I think I want people to know how to ask questions, what questions to ask, how to find answers so that they can use information whatever way works best for them. I was at a training this summer actually for Library Freedom Institute, which we'll talk about in a second, I think, but one of our speakers have you ever heard the phrase, um, when you know better, you do better? No. It's a it's a phrase I have heard a lot growing up. Maybe it's a Midwest thing. I know. When you know better, you do better. So it's a shaming tactic. And I think it goes kind of along the lines of like, I don't know, perhaps the flip side of knowledge is power. Like you're expected to behave in a certain way when you know things. Hmm. And I, I don't want to shame anybody. I think that you can know things and still behave in a different way be, or in an opposite way because we're humans and we have agency. So I also want to be clear that I don't think anybody has to act on, on the information we share, but we might hope so. But like in the kind of teaching that you do, I guess you're providing that information to create that possibility. For, exactly. Yeah, for your students. Exactly. Or, yeah. Yeah. I want them to be able to like complete their assignments because frankly, that's the context in which we're <laughs> together. But I also do this like just seed dropping of like little, little things to think about. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they come back and they want to talk more. And then like that's when the magic happens. But, but yeah. Yeah. Well, and from what you were saying earlier too, I really appreciated like putting your students into a, that broader context. Maybe more, maybe it's more apparent when you're teaching in a high school setting than university, but it's still true like their families or other, you know, people in their lives and how, what information is in that like ecosystem of people around them too. Absolutely. We make decisions based upon our context and our contexts are all different. Mm-hmm. That's just sort of plain and simple. So what is true and right for me might be true and different for another person. And I want to respect that. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense to me. Let's talk about the Library Freedom Institute. So you're part of the 2019 cohort called like a privacy advocate. So can you tell us like what is the Library Freedom Institute? Kind of what is the program? How does like what's the timeline or like how does it how are you moving through that? Yeah, so my cohort um, ended technically in November, but the Library Freedom Institute is essentially an, it's an IMLS-funded train-the-trainer program. What's oh, I'm sorry, the Institute of Museum and Library Services? No, maybe yeah. not Institute. Okay. Andrea mentioned it last time oh. for her memory lab. Yeah. yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, yeah, so it's sorry. like the group here in Washington, <laughs> D.C. that funds museums and libraries. Okay. Okay. Thank you. And I will get you an acronym. (laughs) Oh, no, I've become that librarian. (laughs) Um, Talking in acronyms. Okay. Anyhow, they fund our program. The program selects individuals with ranging levels of comfort and understanding in privacy issues and ideas and wide varieties of locations and job titles. 
mostly geared towards public librarians and those who face the public. There were six of us who were academic librarians, though um, that was out of 30. Everyone else um, would have called themselves a public librarian. Each week, the group met digitally um, over the course of, well, mine was six months. The next cohort will be four months as they, um, as Alison McCrenna, who is the founder, is figuring out what works best, I would say. So, but each week, the group met digitally to hear from experts in the privacy and surveillance arena, which were library professionals, community advocates, lawyers, ACLU reps, uh, so on and so forth. I, I heard from some of the most amazing, intelligent, active people I had ever heard from in my life to learn not only vocabulary and hard skills, but to also learn how these topics impact our most vulnerable communities. There's also one in-person meeting, which um, takes place over a weekend in New York City at NYU, which is also fully funded by the program. So it costs nothing of the librarian to participate, which is pretty cool. Can you talk about like what it means for, for you then in your position as an academic librarian to be a privacy advocate? Yeah, I think this is a great question because I think that it depends on how the person wants to use the knowledge that they've gained, right? So for me, I think being a privacy advocate means being a teacher, someone who teaches others about privacy and privacy-related concerns that are that my students, patrons otherwise, my coworkers, people higher up the, the pay scale. I'm trying to get to the provost right now, for example. I could be a teacher in all of those ways. Um, I think it can mean being a policymaker or a policy changer in one's institution to make sure that policies align with privacy values, which our profession pr professes to have. I think it can mean being a community organizer, going after large structural systems that work to surveil communities under which libraries are obviously embedded. That could be things like fighting CCTV cameras, which are the you know, cameras that record our lives um, when we're walking down the sidewalk or whatever, you know. And I also think it means helping other librarians remember our professed values. So like participating on something like this and talking about these really cool things, I think falls under my advocacy hat. Cool. And so what have you learned in the program? Like what are the key takeaways for you that, yeah. I think like the better question is like, what didn't I learn? <laughs> I, I, I like mine was blown every week for six months and I'm not kidding when I say that. I was certainly, I would consider myself to have been a privacy novice. Like I had questions, I had concerns, but the program helped me to verbalize my concerns, figure out how to talk about it, especially related to sort of invasive technologies and those things that I know that they work, but I don't know how they work. I learned a lot in that arena. I learned how to exist on the internet in a way that disrupts the flow of information and collection data or data collection, which I didn't know before. Um, I learned about surveillance capitalism and how our data is being monetized and then combined with law enforcement efforts to create what is essentially a surveillance state. I learned tactics to teach privacy-related content. There's an idea called threat modeling in which a person decides how private they need their life to be. And then you teach strategies to work toward that level of privacy. We all have different needs. But I think most importantly, I learned that we need sweeping legislation that keeps corporations and law enforcement from doing whatever the hell they want, that we can teach individuals to protect themselves 
only to a certain extent. We need legislation that forces our corporations to be good and to not put the weight of a person's privacy invasion on their own shoulders. Wow, I feel like everything you just listed out like is definitely, there's so much there. <laughs> there's, there's so much. We had class on Fridays and Friday night at dinner, I would talk to my partner about what I learned that day because I just like couldn't keep it in. <laughs> It was a major life-changing, I think, um, program and opportunity. I still can't believe it. (laughs) Are there ways that you can bring the things that you've learned, like, back to your everyday kind of, like, work? Yeah, absolutely. Library Freedom Project, or LFI for short, um, completely changed my personal habits. Because I think it's, it's one thing to, like, explain things to other people, but to, like, put things into practice and then explain things to other people, right, is like the way that we do things, or we should maybe do things. So uh, from my social media usage, to what browsers I use, to how I manage my passwords, to what information I'm willing to give out. Last weekend, I was in New York, and we went to the top of the Empire State Building, and they want to take your picture for silly things you know you can like buy your picture later and I was like don't take my picture (laughs) you know like you don't need to have my picture in your database you know like it just it's totally changed the way that I'm like interacting with the world I think but also has changed the way that I teach I try to do a better job of explaining to students how information is being collected about them when they're using our products when they're interacting with our library interface when they're interacting with database interfaces. If I'm teaching something like Google Scholar, for example, I'm also teaching why that tool is seemingly free and why it's like not really free, right? Because all of this data is being collected about them in exchange. I'm also working to bring up these issues at an institutional level to get these sort of conversations happening in the provost office um, and beyond so that maybe we can change culture on campus. Yeah, those are just some of the ways. Mm-hmm. That's really awesome. I think I I really loved your point about like how, like that's really good to hear that you've been able to verbalize like all the questions or like the things that you were thinking about because like I think that really ties to like knowledge being empowerment because when you can articulate like you can definitely like you have tools to learn to learn more and that's really great. Absolutely, that's exactly what's happening. I didn't have the words, I didn't have the words when I was teaching in high school. I just would tell students better ways to hide their behavior because I think that's important. But now I have words and that's really helpful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So LFI is accepting applications right now. If someone was listening to this and they're like, (laughs) (laughs) I want to do it. Like who would you encourage or, or yeah, what would you tell people thinking about it? I would recommend this program to any library professional who works directly with the public, that's a, a bulk of the work, is, is talking about how to relate to patrons, especially those with low technology skills, if you will. So a lot of our talk was about that. And those who want to have further agency regarding privacy issues in their library and their community. So I think that if, if, if you fall underneath that, those categories, those sweeping categories, please do apply. Applications are due February 10th, and requirements can be found at librayfreedom.org. It's great. I want everybody to do it. Actually, I want this class to be embedded in like every LIS program, but that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother bear.
Okay, so maybe shifting into like data privacy, um, you know, what what is data privacy? Like, why is it important? And I also noticed like one of the things that you said you were really interested was digital safety. Because um, I think sometimes like the more we learn about, you know, data privacy, it can be very scary. Um, so I think safety is definitely something that's, you know, important. Yeah, this is how I would uh, determine the difference between these words, okay? Um, I think digital privacy is the ability to know what data is being collected about you by any given party, how it would be used, and the ability to opt into that collection rather than opting out. Mm. Right now, we don't have that, right? Like, we don't have a whole lot of digital privacy because we're constantly having to opt out of collection versus opting in to collection if we feel like it's good. So I think that digital privacy allows for a person to be in complete control of their digital footprint, if you will, how much is known about them. And so to the extent that we have digital privacy, it's how much we have control and it requires true conform informed consent. I think the term digital safety implies and, and, and true in its implication that harm can be done via the internet. And harm can be done via the internet in, in a lot of different ways. And the steps that one can take to minimize that harm. So like I mentioned earlier, the concept of threat modeling and that we identify what level of privacy we need and that we act upon that level of privacy that we need is a way for us to think about building our own digital safety plan. We all have different sort of safety and privacy needs. For example, a person who is dating on the internet might have a very different threat model than a person who is using social media for professional networking. There are different things that you want to keep hidden and that you'd like to have exposed, right? Same thing goes for totally different, you know, sort of groups of people. Someone who is undocumented is going to have a very different threat model than, than a white man. American citizen in this in this country, right? Like there, are, we have massively different needs, privacy-wise, and that our digital safety is dependent upon what those needs might be. So it's the ability for a person to protect their digital assets, sort of whatever those things might be. So you touched earlier on um, on the importance of legislation and laws to like kind of change the landscape of of what this looks like. Can you talk more about that? Like, why is it so important that librarians and information professionals know about those laws and feel confident, like, talking about them or advocating for change with them? Yeah. I think just really briefly, like, information and professionals have access to or the ability to know a lot about our users. And then depending upon your level of access, you probably know, you could know a little too much about your users. And furthermore, despite the ways in which libraries can feel like unsafe spaces for certain populations and thinking about how people of color might operate within our libraries or the turf issue like in Seattle right now, um, the public still generally favors and trusts the institution of the library. They expect that we will do the right thing with their information. And I think that we then have an obligation to, to work towards doing so and, and to be the trusted space that our communities need. Not to get too vocational awe. I don't want, you know, like we are not the bastions of democracy. Like I was forced <laughs> to believe in my foundations course, there's a lot of problems. Uh, but I think that this is an area in which librarians can do right and should do right. 
Mm-hmm. Thank you. Do you want to talk a little bit about like the ALA values? Because you mentioned, you know, the values of our profession. And I guess when we think of, you know, ALA, the American Library Association is sort of, you know, our, you know, accredited or it grants accreditation. Maybe I'll just read this section. Um, yeah. Quote, the right to privacy, the right to read, consider and develop ideas and beliefs free from observation or unwanted surveillance by the government or others is the bedrock foundation for intellectual freedom. It is essential to the exercise of free speech, free thought and free association, end quote. No, I feel like recently, like we've really, yeah, again, like with Seattle, Toronto, Vancouver, there's a lot about free speech. I don't know if we really want to touch on that free speech square, but <laughs> yeah, I'd be really curious to hear about your thoughts about, you know, these core values. And you mentioned, you know, earlier, like it's, you consider it your job to really like remind us of our, these values. And I feel like maybe we don't get that enough. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I mean, to be honest, outside of a few readings, in library school. I don't feel like I got the focus of privacy that like I think it deserves, um, especially in in a society and in, in a digital environment that is constantly invading our privacy. I didn't get a lot of that in, pri- in, in library school and I'm super impressed by programs who are doing the work, but my program didn't do that work. So I didn't come out of library school like ready to fight for the protections of the people. Like that was not, that is not something that my program prepared me for. And in fact, I was still teaching high school while I was in library school. So I had, you know, like 120 students that I was working with while learning to be a librarian. But I think that some of those core foundations that I did get out of library school did translate into the work that I did in the classroom. I became very adamant about students' rights to read and to read whatever they wanted to. I was willing to fight with their parents. I was willing um, and to, to do all kinds of stuff like that. And so I think that some of that did transfer. I think that the ALA has created a really great set of ideals, but that they don't always provide a lot of guidance on how to follow through with those ideals, what that actually looks like in our practice or daily practice. Um, And I don't think that they do a good job of follow through either on their own (laughs) ideals. Um, And I think that this is a topic conversation which really sort of highlights the ways in which our organization falls short, but that the ways in which us in our everyday work, we probably also fall short. Um, And I think that that reminding is necessary to begin to correct some of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like, well, the, being in my last semester of library school, I did take a, like a freedom of information and privacy class. And it was, I think it was a good overview. It was, you know, really overwhelming. It was very helpful. And I had a lot of like mentors and supervisors really, really recommend that course, but it was very overwhelming in that there's a lot of legislation, a lot of acronyms. You mentioned uh, while we were preparing for this episode as well, in the United States, um, there's the Patriot Act, and Section 215 has been used to collect in bulk, um, I don't know how to pronounce this word, telephony, telephony <laughs> metadata <laughs> of U.S. persons and U.S. citizens. So we're in Canada and B.C., we have FOIPA, the Freedom of Information Protection Privacy Act. Can you tell us, uh, for you know non-U.S. listeners, like what is the Patriot Act, and you know what is Section 215 about and the significance of it? Yeah, I'll do the best that I can. Because like you said, it's all very overwhelming, right? And I'm not like a legal person. I am a librarian. Okay, so the Patriot Act was put into place 
after 9-11 to expand the ways in which the U.S. intelligence agencies could retrieve information and from who in their anti-terrorism efforts. Prior to the Patriot Act, intelligence agencies like the FBI already had the ability to gather information via wiretap, physical searches, trap and trace devices, and the issuance of what we might of what is called national security letters. And these are letters that would request limited amounts of customer identifying information from businesses, which is quite different than metadata, right? Metadata is that information that could be sort of scrambled and not be traced back to an identifying person. National security level letters get that uh, personally identifying information. Of course, once these sort of requests are made, the person who has been requested of cannot speak about that request at all. So you are forced to silence. So while Section 215 doesn't explicitly mention libraries, it does outline the ability for intelligence agencies to access any relevant tangible, tangible items which provides just basically an expanded um, idea as to what could be collected by making it all very vague. I mean, they could collect anything. But that that includes books, records, paper, documents, forms, and all of that is implicated in libraries, right? Like a person goes to get a library card, they fill out a form, then the FBI could request those forms. You know what I mean? So libraries are then implicated. And this was the major change with the Patriot Act in Section 215 from further, from earlier intelligence agency sort of laws. But I think that the significance of the Patriot Act when it comes to libraries is that this is one of like the first major examples of the profession acting upon its values and sort of fighting against the government for the protection of its patrons. ALA fought the Patriot Act and made it clear that as a profession, we would work to maintain patron privacy. And while libraries must cooperate to the extent of the law with requests, Libraries can undercut these requests by not collecting the information and not keeping it. You can't hand over what you don't have. And the conversations at this time, ALA made it okay for libraries to do that, made it okay for libraries to get the information they need and then destroy the information that they need so that they don't have to give it over should it be requested. This is kind of badass for an organization that's not always that way. But we are now 20 years removed from the Patriot Act, or almost, right? Patriot Act 2003. So we're almost 20 years removed. And, I've, and I, I would make the judgment that we've gotten kind of away from those ideals in, in some ways, have gotten away from those ideals. But that we, have, we still have this environment in which these things are really important. ICE is showing up at our public libraries with these same sorts of requests. So and so we still have a reason to be sort of fighting, of course, for for the privacy of our patrons. I will also note that the privacy or the Patriot Act and the fight against it is a fight against the government, if you will. It is not a fight against corporate entities. It is not a fight against the vendors that are financially supporting our industry. And so I think we're also now embarking on a separate but similar kind of fight, if you will, in trying to keep our third-party vendors from collecting information about our patrons. And that's a totally different fight than a fight with the government, which is kind of where we are now. What you're bringing up there 
I think relates really well to something we wanted to ask you about, which is uh, kind of, I guess, like a review of an article that you wrote about um, this article called Protecting Privacy on the Web, a study of HTTPS and Google Analytics implementation in academic library websites. And in that article, you wrote, quote, the authors assert that libraries in the U.S. and abroad are likely violating their own privacy ethics through the use of software that tracks users in order to assess the efficacy of library websites and platforms. While their study only takes a look at the websites for academic libraries, their findings can easily be applied to public libraries, museums, digital libraries, government websites, and so many others. End quote. I thought this was such an interesting article because before I came to library school, I worked in digital marketing and it was something that I had a lot of concerns about and is part of the reason I came to library school. And so it was really interesting to hear somebody writing and thinking about that because I think so many people like just don't understand how that stuff works or how much like you were, you know, just getting into like how much data corporations have access to and are linking up across platforms, all this kind of thing. So can you talk more about that? Like um, the responsibility that institutions have for protecting that kind of student data, data tracking software, either in your workplace or more generally from writing that article, what you learned? Yeah. So the, the article that I read for LibParlor was really interesting. And I think I chose to write about it. That, that was like my job was to find interesting things and then like make them more visible was that I think it highlights the ways in which our professed values are not represented by our actions in our profession. Libraries of all kinds are trying really hard to get to know their patrons so they can build programming or improve services or whatever the reason and changing technologies have allowed us to do so, which is cool. I mean, in many ways, it kind of cool, but it's also really invasive. So with something like Google Analytics, for example, libraries learn so much about how and when um, patrons use our websites. It's really powerful information. But of course, at what cost? We constantly should be asking ourselves, at what cost? Do we want Google understanding our web traffic more than they need to? I would vote no, but I mean, we're doing it, right? Are we designing our websites in a way that create a secure browsing experience for our patrons? That's sort of the HTTPS um, facet of that article. And the answer, according to that article, is like, no, we are not. <laughs> um, ALA's own website is not encrypted. Like, anytime you're on the ALA website, you are more uh, susceptible to DDoS attacks. You're more susceptible to sort of middleman um, hacking. It's a, it's a problem. It's a problem. You shouldn't, and I digress. It's a big problem. And I think that that article really sort of highlights the, the dissonance that we see. But I think that right now, the problem is more so that librarians are stuck a bit in the middle of this sort of rapidly evolving tech scene where we have to learn about the ramifications of that technology after they're already put in place. We're constantly playing catch up in a way that it's really hard to understand the ramifications of those decisions until, until they're already there. So we're working to protect patrons after the fact instead of taking on our vendors head on. There's a really interesting lead pipe article by Sarah Lambden about ICE surveillance and our vendors. Um, I highly recommend it, very, very good. But in that she makes the argument that 
librarians have to stop sort of following up and cleaning up our data um, after our vendors have already like taken it to use for whatever reason. And instead, we should be sort of taking our vendors head on and dropping our vendors who don't behave in a way that represent our values. And I agree with that. And I think that that's the place that we're headed. But that's really hard when those same vendors are, you know, are endorsing and sponsoring our conferences, you know, like, so I think that that's sort of like the, the place that we're at right now. But I think academic libraries have an additional stakeholder and in that the institutions in which we are embedded likely hold different values as far as privacy is concerned. Ed tech and learning analytics decisions are made above us or despite us. And it's really hard to work to protect students and faculty from bad vendor practices when the rest of the institution isn't evaluating its partnerships via the same guidelines, right? So I think it would be fair to say that many of our institutions, as far as privacy is concerned, is working with compliance and security in mind because we don't have federal privacy law, right? There's not much to comply with, like here in DC, California, different thing, right? Because they've enacted some privacy law. Our institutions are dealing with GDPR right now to the extent of which they have to. And when it comes to security, our institutions don't want to deal with hackers and ransomware and DDoS attacks. But all of those things are very different from privacy. And I don't think it would be short-sighted to say that our institutions aren't necessarily concerned with privacy yet. They're concerned with compliance and security. So I think that academic librarians could position themselves really well to have these conversations on their campuses and to begin to change the culture around those conversations, which is something that I'm trying to begin to do at my university right now. Mm -hmm. Do you find like you have the support that you need while you're trying to make those changes at your institution? Yeah, I'm really lucky. Um, I'm at a, I would call, I'm a, I'm at a small private institution. So librarians, one we're faculty which helps and the faculty staff crap is a whole nother conversation right so many conversations but um and how so we are faculty so we are embedded in different sort of parts of the institution we get our hands into a lot of different buckets but i in this effort specifically am working with the head of my instruction department so she is our um, assistant university librarian she's really high up the the scale. She's also our IRB head, which is pretty cool. And then the head of our technology and security department. She's also in on our efforts, which is kind of amazing. I was able to take a proposal to the provost council, which is a body that decides like what issues the provost hears and what he doesn't hear. And I was able to say in front of this audience that we have a security versus privacy issue that the university is doing right now, at least a great job at keeping us secure, but that privacy is being ignored and the head of technology and security agreed with me in front of everybody. So I'm, I'm getting support. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> I can't say that it would be like that for everyone. Actually, I should say it probably won't. <laughs> On the, on the flip side with working with like instruction and students, I'm curious what your experience is like. I do a fair amount of digital literacy instruction in a public library setting. And I find like, even when I'm teaching like 
super beginner computer users, computer basic class, introduction to the internet kind of things. Um, and we talk about things like this, like when we talk about, okay, I'm going to show you about Google Maps, but isn't it interesting that as soon as we open it up, it knows where we are. <laughs> Why? <laughs> you know, like, you know, really, you know, pretty basic stuff, but kind of getting people thinking about that. People are very interested and very receptive and very concerned. And I'm curious with students, what kind of reactions you get when you bring up how, you know, how this kind of technology might be affecting them. Yeah. I think one of the hard parts about teaching privacy on a college campus is that there is a dissonance between the actions that students have control over and which they do not. So for example, they cannot opt out of using a technology or a website or a vendor that they do not trust if that thing is required by their institution or their professor, right? Like there's a, lots of conversation about canvas and structure selling and selling all of this data right like so if you work at a canvas that uses can canvas <laughs> there's nothing you're you can, they can opt out of that you know like so anyhow we, we really need to be pushing for structural change but anyhow but on the note is for like individual choices that students make i think it's really important to note two things one that students care about their privacy point blank that that we can get into this really false narrative that young people don't care about their privacy, young people are willing to put their whole lives on the internet, they must not care. That is wrong, that is false. They care, point blank. They make informed decisions, right? And so I think that universities have a long way to go as far as informed consent is concerned, that at least on our campuses, students do not fully understand all the ways in which information is being collected about them, who has access to that information, and what they could even do about it. An IMLS-funded study called Data Doubles surveyed students at a wide variety of academic institutions and learned that students have no idea what information their libraries, for example, possibly collected on them, but expressed concern when they found out, much like you said. Like when you learn, when they learn, they're very concerned, and not only for themselves, but for others, that students understand that they have classmates that probably have much more dire privacy needs than they do, and they're very concerned about them. Beyond that, I would say that students respond really well to the idea that they can minimize the spread of their personal data starting now. That if they've been, I don't know, not protecting their information on the internet that they can start now and that that works that they like that idea that i can stop potential harm right now they like the analogy that you can't clean up a data spill something that likes it's a phrase that likes to go around once data is out there it's out there and so if you don't want your data to be out there you try to keep it from being out there they respond really really well to that as well and then they want to learn the tips and tricks they want to talk about privacy at a high level they're interested in having those conversations and so i think at this point i want to see students being properly informed of the data collection practices happening on their campuses and then to feel empowered to question those practices and to call for change if they see fit but then to also feel like they can change their own practices in a way that matters to them and that helps them. So. Thank you. Is there something that you wish, you know, people, whether they're librarians, archivists, or like the general community members uh, knew about 
data privacy and information literacy? Well, I think to touch on the information literacy part, that I think that privacy, um, that teaching privacy is information literacy, and that is, I think, a, a, a new conversation, and that I think we're going to see an explosion of this conversation in the coming years. Um, how do we fold this instruction into what we do um, for information literacy already? So I just keep an eye out. But I think that when it comes to like our library's collection practices, we have to collect less and we have to destroy often. If there is information that does not need to be kept for the regular operations of our library, we don't need it. And, and so I think that that's really important. We cannot give over data that we do not have. Furthermore, we have to negotiate licenses with vendors in a way that minimize the amount of data they get from us and how they're able to use it. And if those agreements are not fulfilled or if they cannot be made, then we need to cut ties. And I think that that will feel very radical to some folks, but I, it is the direction that we must go. And so I hope that folks can get on board. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. If folks want to find you, learn more about your work, how can they get in touch? Um, I think right now, best way would probably be via Twitter. It can be found at curls in the lib. My handle. I'll talk about libraries, but also the rest of my life. So I hope they can handle that. <laughs> We can be found on Twitter at OrganizingPod, that's organizing with a Z, not an S. Our email is OrganizingIdeasPod at gmail.com, and our website is OrganizingIdeasPod.wordpress.com, and there will be links to things that Symphony has mentioned, as well as the transcript to this episode.